Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. The best part and the hardest part of life is relationships. We all know this, and yet it doesn't make it any easier. The Bible introduces a revolutionary kind of relationship into the world and invites us to live it out. This past Sunday at Storyline's gathering, we once again considered covenant relationships in marriage, in particular, as a gift of grace from God. The band performed songs by Adele, The Beatles, Bette Midler, and Susan Tedeschi. Let's have a listen.
uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of the male perspective. Uh, because I have been very fortunate. Uh, I really was very lucky to have been on the Oprah show. I was on in the 80s. I was on in the 90s. I was on in the double O's. And it's one of the greatest gifts to the husband in training that any man could possibly receive. And all husbands are husbands in training. You're never done with us, right? No. The most a man hopes for is, all right, we're done for today. And to be here tonight at the United Center and not at a Bulls game, not, certainly proves that I have been trained very well. This is like a dream that a disoriented husband would tell to a Freudian shrink. I went to see a Bulls game and it was packed, it was fans, it was the playoffs, and then somehow it all changed and I was on the Oprah show. That's good. And that's the great gift that the Oprah show has given men. When you're in a disagreement with your significant other, Learn to talk like you're being interviewed on Oprah. Just listen, nod, and answer the questions. Because it's all about listening. And a lot of wives complain that their husbands do not listen. I have never heard my wife say this. She may have, I don't know. One of the things I did not know before I got married that I found out after I got married is that every single day of my married life, I would be discussing the tone in my voice. In the beginning of the relationship, all men raised their voice two full octaves. Courting, flirting, we, we speak like this. Because Chinese food or Italian sounds great. Or maybe we'll take a drive, go for a walk. My actual speaking voice that I am using right now to communicate with you is not welcome in my house. That's why I'm out here talking to you. <laughs> hey, good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together on this high holy day in America, also known as Super Bowl Sunday. Are we excited about this? Anybody? All right, now look, I... I know some of us are really hurting, and so I'm gonna send a shout out to all of our long-suffering Lions fans, okay? You came so close. You really did. And one of the things I love about Storyliners is how supportive we are of one another. And so just imagine how proud I was to receive this meme that I'm about to show you from a Storyliner who's a Bears fan. And they sent this to me because he wanted me to share this as an encouragement to Lions fans. He sent it with the note, this reminded me of the Lions against the 49ers, hopefully more to come next year. John, go ahead and run this meme. This is really inspiring. Everyone's so excited. <laughs> oh, watch the, watch the coach, watch the coach. This is my favorite part. Watch how he responds. <laughs> Hysterical. Oh, So this morning, we are going to continue to explore the topic of marriage. And I have to tell you that the Super Bowl, or really Super Bowl parties, have been a particular point of, let's say, friction in my marriage. Um, so I'm very excited that there is going to be a record number of women watching the Super Bowl this year because of... Taylor Swift, of course, of course. Guys, I guess we can't have anything to ourselves anymore, right? So in fact, and maybe you heard about this, the NFL has made a rule change just for today, just for the ladies. They're actually going to have the refs bring up penalties from 10 games ago. <laughs> Come on, that's funny. Oh, my, don't you, I think my jokes are better when Lisa's not here. I just, 
feel a sense of freedom. Anyways, but I love football. My wife loves parties. Definitely our definition of a Super Bowl party, like what makes one great, very, very different. You know, um, for her, it includes things like veggie trays and, I don't know, scented candles or something. I just want to know, how big is the TV and keep the nachos coming? So case in point, about 15 years ago, I had finally, like, saved up enough money for, like, what was a lifelong dream of mine, which is to have a big screen, like, projection television. And so, buddy of mine helped me put this in our, the corner of our basement, and it's nine feet big. That's how big the screen is. It's awesome. Nine feet of sports action. So I was so excited. I'm going to watch my first Super Bowl on this huge television. I invited just a few buddies over. They were excited. Then two days before the Super Bowl, my wife informed me that she had accepted an invitation to a Super Bowl party, and we were going. And I was like, hold on, wait a second, honey. I've, I, I've organized a Super Bowl party. And then as she asked me about it and found out that it's only four or five buddies, no wives, no veggies, she said, that doesn't count. And so I spent the Super Bowl in Super Bowl Sunday in a house packed full of people, candles, and carrot sticks <laughs> with kids playing video games downstairs on their big screen TV that I was told I was going to get to watch the Super Bowl on. So I'm upstairs sitting on a sofa next to my daughter and all of her teenager friends who were talking about Taylor Swift. There was a TV on in this living room, but it was way over there and it was so small I could not even see the score. So I'm totally suffering through this. The worst part is my friend Brian who helped me put the theater in, okay, keeps calling me from my house, <laughs> mouth full of food, going, this screen is amazing, click, over and over again. Thank you very much. Thank you very little, Brian. So it was a difficult moment for our marriage, to say the, to say the least. So anyways, last week we asked this question, what is the essence of marriage? And we discovered that marriage epitomizes like a great gift that God has given the world. A new way of connecting with one another that the Bible calls covenant relationships. Relationships based on the commitment to love or one way to think of it is what can I give as opposed to consumer relationships that are based on what can I get. So we found that marriage or covenant relationship is God's idea and it's a living example of the kind of love that God has for us and that he longs for us to have with one another, whether we're married, single, divorced, widowed. And this is why Jesus said crazy and upside down counterintuitive things like, I did not come to be served, but to serve. This is the model for how he invites us to live what he called in another place, the abundant life. By entering a covenant relationship with him and transforming all of our relationships with one another into covenant, what can I give relationships. Now, we talk a lot when we're together about connecting with Jesus and following Jesus and, and, and what that can look like. And this morning, I'd like to invite us to consider how we can transform our relationships into covenant relationships. Because that's one of the ways that we follow Jesus and we connect with Jesus, is we work to, strive to, want to change the relationships we have with one another into the kind of relationships he says will bring us into the abundant life. Covenant, what can I give relationships? as opposed to consumer, what do I get out of this relationships? So to do that, once again, we're gonna turn to God's gift of marriage as probably it's the living, breathing example of covenant relationships. So last Sunday we said this, that the essence of marriage is a covenant that cultivates intimacy, creates stability, and completes freedom. This morning, our question is, what is marriage for? Last week was, what is the essence of marriage? This week is, what is the mission of marriage? 
So one of my favorite philosophers taught at the University of Chicago, his name was Mortimer Adler, and he had this little saying, I used to have it on a little notepad on my desk, and, and it said this, he who asks the wrong questions gets the wrong answers. And I think that's true in basically every sphere of life, including the sphere that we are kind of related to on a Sunday morning, which is this sphere of religion. Here's, here's the thing, religious people and, and religions of all different stripes, they have something in common. And this is what it is. They, essentially, all religions are asking the same question, and it's this. How can I get God to love me? Now, it's not a bad question, but according to Jesus, it's the wrong question. And the variety of religious answers to this wrong question have left the tragic mark of exclusion and judgment and shame and all kinds of persecution and even at times violence in the course, over the course of human history. So it's into this world fixated on religious questions that Jesus shows up with his unbelievably good news. And it offended the religious people of his day and it offends religious people in our day. Because when he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, in another translation he says, the kingdom of God is among you. In another translation he says, the kingdom of God is within you. He is saying there is nothing that you can do to get God on your side, to get God to love you, because he's already on your side. God already loves you. Now you can see why right away that the people who are most upset about this were the religious people. The folks who like used religion as a a way to make money, as a way to get power, as a way to have position and prestige in society. They were the gatekeepers to God. They were the ones who were, were really busy telling people who's in and who's out and what you gotta believe and can't believe and gotta do and can't do. But Jesus was saying, when he shows up with this great news, what we call the gospel of grace, there's nothing we can do to get God on our side because he's already on our side. Jesus is saying, your religion is, well, it's, it's really pointless. You're asking the wrong question because the issue in life is not how do we get God to love us? The question is, how do we get ourselves to love God? That's the question. That's the issue. That's the human dilemma. That's the project of life. And this is why, according to the gospel of grace of Jesus, life is for transformation. Changing from people who naturally do not love as in desire and delight in God into people who do. People who, like God, love, love. And love to love and that is the mission of marriage so you you see religion in the end at its root is on the wrong mission because it's all about changing god light this candle say that prayer chant this phrase sing this song face that direction make this sacrifice believe this doctrine stop doing x start doing y and then then, well, God will love you. It is, and maybe you're familiar with this phrase, quid pro quo. It's this for that. I'll do this, and then God, you'll give me that, your love. Religion is transactional. But Jesus' gospel of grace is totally different. It's completely upside down. It's inside out from religion. Grace is all about changing us. It is transformational and this may be why the bible begins and ends with marriage one of the very first things that happens 
And one of the very last thing that happens in the Bible is a wedding. Because what life is for is paralleled. It is embodied in what marriage is for. Transformational relationships. Now, the contemporary notion of marriage is that it is just for romance and everything that comes with it, like studies show and, and music celebrates and movies depict, dating apps confirm. That in our culture, marriage is about finding and enjoying our perfectly compatible soulmate, right? Now, there's an enormous, pro- enormous problem with this view of marriage. It, if this is what you're looking for, or if this is your idea of what marriage is for, finding my one true, perfectly compatible soulmate, someone who won't and doesn't need to change, the problem is no one's really like that. It's not realistic. That's not how human beings are. Now, we can try and pose ourselves and market ourselves as fun, happy-go-lucky people, just a soul made away from perfection. But we aren't really like that, and neither is anyone else. When we get married, when we enter into any covenant relationship, we come into it with flaws. Now, I want to try to illustrate for you exactly what that looks like. And to do that, I have a couple of friends, friends here. here. This is Mr. This and Mrs. Is Mr. Mug. and Mrs. Mug. Okay? Okay? So say, hey, so, say Mr. Mug. Hey, this is Mr. Mug. This is Mrs. Hey, Mug. Okay, Mr. Mr. Mug. Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Mug. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Mug. right after Matt. Now, I want to try to illustrate for you exactly what that looks like. And to do that, I have a couple of friends, friends here. here. This is Mr. This and Mrs. Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Mug. Okay? Okay? So say, hey, so, say it's Mr. Hey. Mug said, I, ooh, I got, you know, and she's like, ooh, you know, he had a degree and a future, and she was, you know, look at her. I mean, she's a knockout, so she's, oh, that's, that's working, working, working for her. And so, and they so started dating, they started dating, and you know, they first started dating, and hanging out, I promise you, that was good. The point is they start dating and everything's going great and then something, they get married and something happens. Like they bump into each other and then all these beads kind of just fall out everywhere. And the idea is the beads are the flaws and they don't come out when you're courting. They come out when you get into covenant with each other. And so everyone comes into marriage with stuff in us. There are no two perfectly compatible people because everyone is fundamentally imperfect and incompatible. There's a great line in a Seinfeld episode. Jerry says, 98% of people are undateable. And Elaine says, well then how are all these people finding each other? And Jerry responds, alcohol. (laughs) One writer put it this way. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry. And that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This assumption overlooks the crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, it means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now, if this is true, that in some sense, we, are all, we always marry the wrong person, and I hate to break the news to some of you, but all of us who've been married for more than one year know that it is true, right? <laughs> if this is true, yet marriage is God's idea created as a gift, the the mission of transformation, transforming us into people who will love love, then we need to think about this more. We really need to consider exactly more what is the essence and mission of marriage. And that's what last week and this morning is hopefully about. Just sticking our toe in the water of what this could mean and, and look like for us and what it has to show us about who we are and who God is inviting us to become. 
And so this morning, I'd like to suggest real quickly, I'm gonna go through three perspectives and one secret I think that may help us live in and live out the grace of God in covenant relationships. Like, and using marriage as the primary example, but keeping in mind that this is applicable to all relationships that we want to transform into covenant relationships. So here's the first perspective. It's recognizing that marriage is really hard. It's just really hard. One of the reasons we see marriages often with like the rich and the famous that just last like a few months. I, I looked up a list of some of the shortest celebrity marriages. There's some that are less than a week, right? And it's because they're not prepared. They really bought into the perfect compatibility, the soulmate myth. So after walking down the aisle, all the, you know, and all the stuff, all the beads pop out of the mug, and the, the, the stuff they've been holding onto comes out, the fairy tale becomes a nightmare, and they assume that the marriage was a mistake. Marriage is not about two people who mesh perfectly, coming together. Now that doesn't mean that compatibility isn't important, it is, but it also is about really a constructive clash. One author describes it like this, and I love this analogy. He, he says, imagine two gems. These are raw sapphires, by the way. Two gems, you put them in a rock tumbler with some sand and some water, and you spin that thing for about 40 or 50 years. <laughs> and even though it's difficult, and it's very painful at times, it's this lifelong process, in the end, things come out, they come out as polished gems because they've polished one another. Perfect compatibility doesn't polish us. In covenant relationships, flaws are exposed and we are faced with the choice of self-examination, a growing self-awareness, a reflection and growth that leads to a deeper connection to the other, to God, to ourselves, or if we're unwilling to go there, it leads to defensiveness, Blame, anger, followed by resentment, isolation, and disconnection. Marriage is not a fairy tale. It is the epic novel that's written after the happily ever after. With many chapters, some very happy, some very sad, a lot very difficult, and many kind of slow and maybe a little boring. But the end of the story makes every chapter worth reading. Seeing marriage in the light of the gospel of grace as a gift for our transformation means we're not surprised by how hard it is. It isn't easy because it isn't supposed to be.
so good. Wow, so good. Thank you, ladies. So a second perspective on covenant relationships is it's not just about who they are now. It's about who they are becoming. Now, don't get me wrong, we definitely need to fall in love with the person that we're gonna marry, as they are. But it's also very important that, that we're in love with the person we see them becoming. In 1989, I moved to Los Angeles, and really quickly, especially back then, you discovered in LA there's two kinds of air. There's like smooth and chunky style. And that summer, um, the summer and the fall tend to be the hottest months. And again, in the late 80s and the early 90s, the smog was awful. It's much better now. But uh, the smog was terrible. So my first few months in Los Angeles, I would leave campus, take Sepulveda Boulevard south, and then turn left or east onto Venice Boulevard. And that would, I would be headed inland okay, and uh, on Venice toward my apartment. And this is generally what it looked like, okay, because I was facing downtown. Downtown was right in front of me. South Central was off to the right. And, and then it happened. It was a cool winter morning. It had rained that night. The air was clear and clean. I went down Sepulveda. I turned left on Venice. And I had like an out-of-body experience because I'm going east, I'm facing inland, and I just about drove my car off the road because for the first time ever, and I had lived in LA for months by, by this time, I got my first glimpse of just how beautiful Los Angeles really is. This is Los Angeles, California. That is not Denver or Salt Lake City. That is LA, people. You almost never see it that way. But that is the real Los Angeles. What an incredible transformation. You have to see it to believe it. Years ago, my friend Dewey asked me, what is it that you love so much about Lisa? And without thinking about it, because I had never really thought about it until that moment, I told him, I just love the way God loves her. I love the way she loves God and I just know he is gonna do like amazing things in her life and through her life. Now certainly when I asked Lisa to marry me, I loved her as she was, but I also loved who she was becoming. Like, and there have been moments in our relationship where the sky has cleared and I have seen this incredible, beautiful glimpse of who she is becoming and it is she is so inspiring to me marriage in the light of the gospel of Jesus seen as a gift for transforming us is not just about loving who you have in front of you it is also in some sense about loving who are they be who they are becoming and wanting desperately to be a part of that now, I shared this with Lisa, and I could tell she was kind of touched. So I, th I asked her, I go, well, you know, what is it that you loved about me, you know, when we got married, you know? <laughs> and she kind of got this guilty look on her face, and she goes, I just married you because you're so hot. I don't, <laughs> it's a curse, people, what can I say? I just, wow. All right, third perspective is that friendship trumps chemistry. Now that doesn't mean that physical chemistry and attraction are not important, they are. We talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. It means, that, it means that friendship does not grow out of physical attraction, but great physical chemistry can and does grow out of deep friendship. There's nothing more attractive than someone you admire, someone you believe in, someone you trust admiring and believing in and trusting in you. Counselors sometimes call this the admiration-adoration cycle. And it's this upward spiral in relationships where you admire something about your partner and that leads to a type of you adore that them and then that helps you to see even more things to admire and, and it's just a life-giving upward spiral. And this is why we see, I think, so many workplace romances. They're born in the workplace. Why? Because they begin as friendships, 
And then over the years of seeing and admiring the competence, the compassion, the character of a colleague, chemistry is developed. A relationship grows. For the mission of marriage to be accomplished, we need our spouse to get us, like to understand us like a friend, like how we really operate. And, and, and then mirror that back to us even when it hurts. That's what I love about these things. It kills me about these things. You get a guy away from his wife for a couple days, you pour a couple drinks into him, he all of a sudden becomes the world's foremost expert on sports. That's why God created wives, Bob. So that they could show men when they're being holes. I mean, you get a guy away from his wife for any length of time, and he hasn't the first idea how to behave. Take it from me. Well, the Bible said God created Eve as a helpmeet. As a what? <laughs> a helper, suitable to meet his needs. I don't know anything about that, Bob. But what I do know is this. God created women to be mirrors so a man could see what an empty is. I mean, you talk to me about souls. A man does not know what his soul looks like, hasn't any idea what his soul looks like until he gazes into the eyes of the woman that he's married to. And then, if he's any kind of decent human being, he spends the next couple of days throwing up. Because no man, no honest man, can stand that image. Go ahead, take your shoes off and be comfortable. Everybody's gone. I thought you said you didn't like being married. Well, I didn't. But that doesn't mean I don't recommend it. There's a lot of things in this life, Bob, that are good for you that are not necessarily pleasant. Like circumcision. <laughs> Look, marriage has a mission. When we know that, that marriage and covenant relationships are for our transformation, we can adopt these perspectives. We're not surprised when it's hard. We can focus on who they're becoming as well as who they are. And we remember that friendship trumps chemistry. Which brings us to the last thing I wanna reflect on for a minute, which is the secret of marriage and really all covenant relationships. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago. A couple gets married, they have a child, and as the child grows, and, and in spite of how hard it is and how much they have to sacrifice and how much they give as parents, as, as parents, the husband and wife, they give and give and give to their child. However, in the marriage, when difficult times come up, and let's say to be safe, it's the husband who's not quite the husband he used to be. He isn't given as much as he used to. The wife thinks, hey, if he's not the husband he used to be, I don't need to be the wife that I used to be. So she gives a little bit less. Then the husband sees that, and he gives even less. And before you know it, they're in a downward spiral. They're operating on a consumer mentality. And what happens? What's the result of this? where we see a covenant relationship in a family, the parents with the child, and a consumer relationship within the marriage. What happens? 25 years later into the marriage, the child leaves the house. Both parents are deeply committed and have enormous affection for the child and can't stand each other. We see this over and over again, and why is that? Because, and this is the secret, <laughs> the more you make love a verb, a story, the more you feel love as a noun, a state. This is the secret to marriage, covenant relationships like those between parents and children where love is shown regardless of what's being given back, create affection. But the opposite is also true. Consumer relationships where the less love you get 
equals the less love you give and time destroy affection. Now this of course begs a big huge question which is how can we give more than we're getting? Won't this leave us empty and depleted in the end? And the answer is yes, it is. And here I have to say just for a second that I always get quite a few emails and texts on Sunday and Monday. A huge part of what I do in my role at Storyline is frankly respond to and answer texts and emails and phone calls that come in on Sunday and Monday and into Tuesday and meet with people throughout the week, usually discussing something that I said. And I love it, it's great. But last week, it was like off the charts. And I apologize to those of you I haven't gotten back to because I, there's just no way I could have responded to everybody. Clearly marriage and covenant relationship is a big deal for us. Like we care about it deeply. It impacts us very, very much and those that we love. So how do we do it? How in the world can we engage in this secret of giving more than we're getting? Well, one writer puts it like this. He calls it love philanthropy or the way we'll put it is the secret to the secret of marriage. Philanthropy means to be charitable. And to be charitable means you are giving away money with the expectation of nothing in return. And that means you have to have another source of income. And this is true for marriages and all covenant relationships. You can give an enormous amount of love to people who are not giving you much or any only if you are getting love from somewhere else. The Bible says that God is not just loving, but that God is love. That's been the basis of this larger series that we're in right now, Love Matters Most. God is love. When we are connected to God, when we, we have an enormous capability of giving love philanthropically, of giving more love than we're getting in return. The Bible says it this way, when we love one another, God dwells in deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us. Notice that dependent clause, when we love one another, God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us. You see, established in life by a covenant relationship with God, we don't give love as an investment so we can get it back in return. We give love because when we're connected to God in a covenant relationship, we begin to love loving that literally, by the way, is what philanthropy means, the love of loving. So here's the deal. We all know this. Life is about relationships. The best part and the worst part about life is other people. <laughs> it's relationships. The fundamental choice that we all have to make is how do we want to live how do we want this life of ours to go? And this is what Jesus is suggesting. Give only what we're getting and we will be consumed. Or give more than we are getting and we will be transformed. Now all of this, the last two weeks, have, has grown out of one short little instruction, one verse in the Bible about marriage. This is the verse. Husbands, love your wives just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. On the cross, Jesus looks down on the people he came to save, the people that God made a covenant with, and that includes you, and that includes me. And even though we aren't loving him 
giving him love back, respecting him, or giving him any affection, he gave himself up for us. This is the most loving act in the history of the world. Jesus giving all he had to give, his very life, when we were not only not giving him anything, we were actually taking his life. He could have escaped, he could have stopped the whole thing, he was free to leave, but he didn't. He kept loving, he kept on giving. How? Because he was deeply engaged in, living in and living out the secret to the secret. You see, the problem with religion is that it makes God into a consumer, a a being who created us to get something from us. Many people, most of the people that I talk to who are like, I don't, faith, no way, God, mm -mm, church, forget about it. Most of those people, they're not actually objecting to faith, God, communities, church. They're actually objecting, objecting to a particular view of God. God as a consumer, an unhappy, needy God who created us and needs us to praise him and worship him for him to be okay. This fragile, brittle, shallow God of religion. But in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see that God is not like that. God is not a consumer. He didn't create us to get something from us. He's a giver. He is good. He is all loving. He is love. He is gracious. He's a covenant God. He didn't create us to get something from us. He created to give something to us himself. And this is how we can enter into a a covenant with him and this is how we can give more to others than they are than we are getting from others because we have another source the source of love loving us that is how Jesus kept his covenant with us and that is how we can keep it or try to keep it with one another knowing and loving and being loved by God in the way Jesus invites us to. It's the opposite of religion. It's not a consumer relationship, it is a covenant relationship and this is the beauty of God's love. This is why God made us and what life is for and why he so desperately wants us to accept his love and give it away. See, God does not love us because we are lovely. He loves us to make us lovely. And we complete God's love in us only when we do with God's love what he does. Give it away. Which is why we talk about it all the time. Love, as it turns out, is not really something that you can hold. It's not something we can have. It is only something that we can flow with. And when that kind of life is coursing through us, love, no matter how buried it might be in all of the crap and context of real life, we'll only discover that it's not buried, it's planted. And when the new day dawns, when the spring comes, we will be completely transformed.
Beautiful. Thank you, thank you. It's the one who won't be taken, who cannot seem to give, and the soul afraid of dying that never learns to live. Marriage and all covenant relationships are on this mission, to be taken up by the love of God, to flourish and to bloom as we are transformed into those who love, love. That is the abundant life. And it comes to us only as it courses through us in covenant relationships, which are the embodiment, us living in and living out the grace of God. That is the mission of marriage. It is what love and life itself is for. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and for this place and for this opportunity to be together and for the people in our lives who have loved us even when we weren't all that lovely. I thank you for the grace and for your grace and your desire to transform us into people who love you, who love others by inviting us to love others like you do, by giving, forgiving, inviting, including. I pray this morning that you will help us to accept our acceptance and your invitation to life as a covenant of love. As we leave, help us to grow and remain open alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. See you next week.